Welcome to Brotherly Pod. It is uh, Thursday, March 18th, 2021 here. And uh, Anthony's back as always. Anthony, how you doing? Not too bad, man. What about yourself? Oh, you know, just loving the sport of hockey right now, that's for sure. That loss was rough. That was bad. (laughs) But uh, don't worry, everybody. We're going to talk about a Pennsylvania hockey team, but it sure as hell is not going to be the Flyers. After last night's debacle, we're going to instead, uh, returning guest, Josh Yogi is back in the program talking the Pittsburgh Penguins. Josh, how you doing? Why don't you guys want to talk about the Flyers? I can't imagine what's going on. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, a bit brutal yeah, I, right now. They were my pick to win the division, by the way, so I'm just, just throwing that out there. I don't, I'm a little surprised. You're, you're, you're generous. You're just pandering now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the Pens, 18, 10, and 1, third in the East, were on a six-game win streak before their loss to the Bruins earlier in the week. You know, every year it seems like the rumors of their demise start to swirl, and then they go out there and prove everybody wrong. So is this just another one of those years? Uh, I think so. Um, that might well be the case, although there is uh, some Evgeny Malkin injury news right now. Uh, we don't have all the information as of this recording, I can tell you. He's not going to play against the Devils on Thursday night. He's got a knee injury. And uh, Mike Sullivan said that they're still, uh, you know, checking it out and don't have a, a firm diagnosis just yet. Uh, so that's a little bit of a scary news for the Penguins. Malkin uh, had a horrible start to the season, but he's been their best player for the last two or three weeks. It has been vintage Malkin. Uh, if he is out for any stretch of time, that's a real problem for the Penguins. Uh, that said, it might not be serious. And if it's not, um, yeah, they're playing really good hockey right now. I mean, they, they have everything going. They're clearly a playoff team if he's healthy, in my view, partially because their schedule is so easy. They've dealt with the brunt of their schedule. Uh, 13 of their next, or 14 of their next 19, I believe, are against the Sabres, Devils, and Rangers. So um, they have a chance to make some hay right now. But if Malkin is out, obviously that changes things. Early in the season, it seemed like goaltending was kind of plaguing the Penguins. Has that trended in the right direction a lot of late? Yeah, it sure has. Um, uh, Tristan Jari's been outstanding, and it's not just him. Uh, Casey DeSmith, their backup, and as you guys know, with the schedule the way it is, you need a backup goalie to be pretty decent right now, too. They're going to have to play some, and uh, Casey DeSmith has been lights out. 
Uh, he's had a couple of shutouts. He's been outstanding, but J- Jari's the guy. And uh, it all goes back to February 14th for him for Val- on Valentine's Day. Uh, he was not supposed to start that day against the Washington Capitals, and he had not been playing well. And the Smith woke up and was sick that morning. So Jari went out and played, got the win. And from that point on, he has been outstanding. He's played at the level that he played last season when he made the All-Star game. So uh, the goaltending has taken a huge turn for the better for the Penguins. And that's a good thing because it was awful the first three or four weeks. Obviously, the depth is the big issue in Pittsburgh. Just looking at some of their their point totals yeah. here, you got a handful of guys with twenty plus points, and the rest of the team is you know four, five, and six. So, is that going to be something they're going to look to address the best they can at the trade deadline? Yeah, it is. And I mean, again, I go back to Malkin, and what what a huge story this is if he misses a, a chunk of time. And also Teddy Bluger, who is their third line center and a really good player. He has turned into some kind of a good two-way player. He's out with a long-term injury. I think he's out for about a month. Um, it was an injury courtesy of a cheap shot from Brad Marchand, by the way, which is not getting a whole lot of play, but a pretty nasty play. Basically raked his neck with his stick, and he's out for quite some time. So they could be looking at you know, playing a long stretch without their number two and number three centers. Uh, that's a problem because, like you said, they're not a deep team to begin with at all. So uh, Ron Hextall, who you guys know a thing or two about, the new general manager, he's going to be in the spotlight. Uh, The question is, who's available and how much money will the Penguins be willing to spend? Usually they spend all the money that it takes, but like so many other teams, they've been hit very hard financially in the last year with the pandemic. So I'm fascinated to see what they do. Uh, One name that you guys are going to hear a ton of as we get closer to the deadline and that you'll probably hear involving the Penguins is Eric Stahl. I know he has not played well in Buffalo this season, but I wonder how much of that just has to do with having to play for the Buffalo Sabres. Um, Stahl's a guy that I know they've always liked. They would love to slot him in the third-line center and move Bluger down to four, have him play behind Crosby and Malkin, and maybe they really try to go get him now if the centers are out for a long time. So that's just one name to uh, keep in mind. It seems like one of the few benefits from all these injuries is that they've been able to bank some cap space and they were projected to have just under $4 million by the time the deadline comes around. In addition to stall, do you think maybe they could look to make an ad on the back end? Uh, it's possible, but you know they really like their back end right now. So I, I don't think so. If you look right now, they're finally healthy on the blue line, which they haven't been all year. Uh, John Marino will be back in the lineup tonight. So they really like their top pairing, obviously, with Latang and Dumoulin. And then you've got Marcus Pedersen and John Marino. It's a pretty good second pairing. One of the stories of the season, and everybody laughs when I say this, but Cody Ceci has been outstanding. He's been really good as their third pairing guy on the right side. He's just been terrific. Um, nobody saw that coming uh, after the way he played the last couple of years, especially with the Leafs. But he, he's been really good. Um, and you got Mike Matheson playing beside him they would love to trade Matheson but I I don't think that's a movable contract so they're gonna have to deal with him Uh, but also they've got a young kid named P.O. Joseph who played a few games earlier in the year and he was outstanding he's going to be a good top four defenseman so if anything it wouldn't shock me if they move Marcus Pedersen if they're gonna move anyone off the blue line and just insert P.O. Joseph right into that spot they think he's ready if they want to trade someone to bring in a forward And I say that because they don't have a first-round pick to trade. They don't have many prospects to trade. So that actually might be their best bet. So I don't think they'll be bringing in anyone on the blue line. But uh, the the bottom six is just not very good. 
they they really need a couple of pieces there if they want to compete with some of the teams, you know, whether it be Boston, Washington, whoever, these uh, deeper teams, uh, the Penguins certainly are not that. Well, you did mention our old friend, Ron Hextall. What's the feeling out there from behind enemy lines in Pittsburgh? You know, what he's bringing to the table out there. Was he brought in to guide them through a potential rebuild, retooling kind of phrase, or is he brought in for the here and now to continue the Penguins' dominance? His job is almost impossible right now because like, he has this reputation for being a guy who can build, you know, build organizations. He did it in L.A., partially anyway i think he did a good job in philly in many ways with the team that he put together there so he's a guy that you know i think has an eye for talent and doesn't like to trade draft picks doesn't like to trade prospects and that goes against the penguins way entirely so yeah he wants to be prudent and to try to develop some things in the farm system no question but at the same time it's the penguins right and it's still crosby and malkin and they're still in good position right now and ownership is basically telling him, hey, by the way, we'd like to win another cup before we rebuild a little bit. So I wouldn't want to be Ron right now. And I think he's a really smart guy. Uh, I'm just curious to see what he does and making matters even more interesting. You've got Brian Burke, who was hired to work with Ron Hextall. Now, Brian Burke went on Canadian television and a podcast back in November or December, whenever it was. Maybe it was when the season started. And he basically said, oh, the Penguins are done. Like they need to rebuild. And now all of a sudden he's working with Hextall and the Penguins have played extremely well since those two have taken over. Uh, so it's fascinating to see what they do at the deadline, but it's, it's the Penguins. So I'm sure they're going to do something. I'm glad you bring up Burke because he went on TSN Toronto radio and he mentioned that he was actually a consultant for Penguins ownership through this GM and presidential search, and it kind of just <laughs> fell into his lap. And he said he wasn't searching for it, but the Pens really sold him on it. Was he kind of a plan before they hired Hextall? Did they come in together? Was he brought in after Hextall? And how do you think that dynamic will work between the two? No, it's really bizarre. Um, and I'm, it's, it's a good question. Um, yeah, they use Burke as a consultant. Basically, Mario Lemieux has known Burke for a long time. They get along. He, he trusts Burke. So Burke was a guy that they used, and Burke had really nice things to say about Hextall. So they knew they were bringing Ron in, and they said, you know, we kind of we have the money to do it. We want to bring in somebody to work with Hextall and to oversee all of our hockey operations. And they didn't really know who would be best. And David Morehouse, the team president, was going over possibilities and it was one night Mario just looked at him. He said, what about just Berkey? He's been working for us already. Like, we like Berkey. <laughs> so they called him and they said, well, what do you say? Do you just want this job? And Burke slept on it for one night. And then he called Mario in the morning. And he said, you know what? I will take that job, in fact. So that, that's how it worked. Um, the dynamic between these two, though, is fascinating. When you ask Brian Burke, like, who's in charge here? Who's calling the shots? You were Hextall. Uh, he always defers to Hextall. He says, oh, Ron's the general manager. He's the guy. But the funny thing is, Hextall um, is so low-key, not, not at all the way he was as a player. He's so quiet and so reserved publicly. And and Burke is just this larger-than-life personality. So you always look at Burke as being kind of the alpha figure between the two of them. At least you would assume that, even though Burke maintains that's not the case. So... That's a long-winded way to say, I have no idea who's calling the shots right now, but it's it's one of them, and we'll see how well they work together. It's, it, that's an interesting you know kind of comparison, because that always seemed how he came across here as well. It was the kind of quiet, reserved guy. But a lot of the stuff that has come out since he left was he was very 
controlling almost. You know, he, he it was a his way or the highway kind of thing from uh-huh. the front office perspective. So that will be an interesting mesh uh, in time there with the Burke and Hextall duo. Yeah, well, and and listen, David Morehouse is the team president, and I know for a fact that he has, you know, kind of uh, irritated former general managers in Pittsburgh because he likes to have some say in the hockey operations as well. And I know Ray Shiro, for a fact, didn't like it, and I have a feeling Jim Rutherford didn't either. Um, So now you throw Brian Burke into the mix, and like I always say, you you might love the Penguins, or if you're listening to this podcast, you probably hate them. (laughs) (laughs) Ever, ever boring. They're just not. Um, the, between the star power and all the trades they always make and everything, there's always some drama, and uh, this season is no different. You know, you brought up that you think they may look to improve that 3C position, specifically Eric Stahl, but a guy who has occupied that slot for a large portion of the past couple of years is Jared McCann, currently injured. And I feel like he's a very underrated player for the Penguins, does a lot of good things. When he comes back, if they do, in fact add a 3C, where do you see him fitting in the lineup? Well, he's a very interesting player. He's streaky. That's the problem with McCann. He hit a bad streak last year before the pandemic hit. He didn't have a goal in, I think, 20 games. Uh, But you watch him play, and you see how talented he is. He's a pretty big kid. He can really skate. He's got a fabulous shot. He can play center or wing. If the Penguins are healthy, uh, and they're not right now, if they can get healthy for the playoffs, I believe you will see Jared McCann on Evgeny Malkin's left wing. Um, For the last couple of weeks, that line has been fabulous with Malkin centering Jared McCann and Kasperi Kapanen. I mean, it's just been a great line. And those three have serious chemistries. So I think ideally the Penguins prefer him at wing. Um, The thing for them is, you know, I mentioned Teddy Bluger earlier. Is he a 3C or a 4C? That's the question. Because he plays on a line with Brandon Tanov and Zach Aston Reitz. It's a really good line. And in my view, it's a great fourth line. It'd be one of the best fourth lines in hockey. But the Penguins have had to use it as a third line primarily, which isn't really ideal. If they get healthy and Jason Zucker comes back and gets healthy and they bring in an, bring in an Eric Stahl, all of a sudden that becomes your fourth line. But I, I, I think McCann probably will play on Malkin's wing. However, for now... He's going to be the 2C, although he's not playing tonight. He should be back in the lineup within the next few days. You'll probably see him as the second-line center behind Crosby for as long as Malkin is out. How is Chris Letang holding up? I believe he's, what, 33 now? Is he still, you know, uh, doing perfectly fine as the number one defenseman back there? Uh, well, the, I'm sure you guys have some people in the Philly fan base that are very polarizing for the fans. Like, half the fans hate him and half the fans love him. Oh, yeah. I yeah, that, that's always been Latang. Uh, Latang's one of those guys, when he screws up, the whole rink notices because none of his errors are ever subtle, and he will just commit some turnovers that will infuriate you sometimes. But he's also just this awesome talent who, you know, when he's locked in and playing well, there aren't many defensemen better. Um, the first six weeks of the season were the worst I've ever seen him play in the NHL. He was awful, and I would say the same of Malkin, incidentally. I really think with all the time off in the last year or so, I just think it took the legs a while to get going. And Latang, for the last three or four weeks, has been a number one level defenseman. He's been outstanding. Um, and part of that is Brian Dumoulin, his regular partner, is back with him. Uh, Dumoulin is one of the most underrated players in hockey, in my opinion. Um, just such of a great defensive player. He knows how to play with Chris. Um, Latang's a hard guy to play with because he's all over the place. He's always jumping into the play and taking chances. Um, but that said, uh, to answer your question, 
he's been way better the last three or four weeks. He, he is now playing at the level in which we are accustomed to seeing him play. Be very interesting. I, I mentioned Latang and Malkin. They are both free agents in the summer of 22. And so they've got one more season after this one. At that point, Malkin will turn 36. Latang will turn 35. Uh, it will be fascinating to see if they get a new contract, if they are traded before then. Uh, the Penguins just let them walk. I don't think that will happen. I suspect they will both still be around, but who knows? We spoke to George Richards, who covers the Panthers a couple days ago, and he couldn't speak well enough about how Patrick Hornquist has fit down there. How has that trade worked out for the Penguins? Not well. Um, <laughs> you know, I will say this. Mike Matheson hasn't been horrible. He's kind of like a poor man's Latang. He helps you offensively. He does things in the offensive zone with his skating every game that just are jaw-dropping. But then he will just commit the most awful turnover or just lose track of his man in the defensive zone. He does it every game. It's like he's never been coached before. It's just weird. The Mike Matheson experience is fascinating. So I can see why coaches or scouts would be intrigued by him. He's a big-time talent, but I would just say he's been okay. And he strikes me as the kind of guy that might hurt you in a playoff series. Teams are going to isolate on him. On the flip side, Patrick Hornquist is a player that I hold just in the highest regard. I, maybe he's not the player he was four years ago. And I know he makes a good chunk of money at around five and a half mil. And he's got three years left on his deal. And his body's taking a beating. You know what? I will take that guy on my team any day of the week. Um the Penguins don't win those two cups in 16 and 17 without him. Um, the big goals that he would score, the beating he would take in front of the net on the power play, his puck retrieval skills. He doesn't play a pretty game. I know the uh, analytic uh, community doesn't really love him, but you cannot deny how many big moments he was on the ice for in recent Penguins history. And uh, wherever the guy goes, he produces and he wins. And I think he's absolutely made the Panthers better. They've been one of the real surprises in the National Hockey League this season. And he, the word leadership gets so overused in hockey, so I apologize for using it. But, but he is. I mean, he always should have had a letter on his sweater in Pittsburgh. He, it's just the energy he brings to work every single day, um, the, the influence that he is on younger players, just the work ethic that he puts in. Um, I, I can't say enough good things about him. You brought up Latang and Malkin's contract, you know, ending in the summer of 22. But seemingly, a lot of this team is locked up for next season. Are they going to feel the pressure to win either this year or next year before they have to deal with some of these bigger UFAs in 22? Yeah, I think so. And Brian Russ is a UFA in 22 also, and he's going to be do a pretty big raise. That guy's a heck of a player. He only makes three and a half million a year, which is a real bargain. Um, yeah, for a while I have thought that the Penguins' window probably closes in the summer of 22. We don't know that for a fact. It, you know, it's just so interesting with the new regime now with, with Brian Burke and Ron Hextall. Because um, Jim Rutherford, I mean, he would tell you what he was going to do. And, in fact, he did. I, I talked with Jim about a week before he resigned. And at that point, he had no intentions of resigning. And I asked him, what's the window? What's your plan? And he didn't come out and say it, but he basically said in the summer of 22, we're going to have a ton of money to play with, which probably meant they weren't bringing back Latang or Malkin, I'm guessing. And he said, we were going to make a huge splash in free agency. Now, I don't know what that means or what player he had in mind, but they were going to try to rebuild around Crosby on the fly in the summer of 22. And there are a lot of free agents uh, scheduled uh, for that summer as of right now. 
Um, they were looking to go get somebody big. There's no question about it. So that was his plan. I, I don't know that that will be Ron Hextall's plan at all. Um, but the problem for the Penguins, they literally have two good prospects, Samuel Pullen and Nathan Laguerre. And they're good prospects. I think they'll be good NHL players. I don't know that they'll be impactful NHL players. Maybe, maybe not. Those are the only two guys they have. They've literally traded everyone else. So if the Penguins are going to rebuild, it's going to be a very long and painful rebuild. Um, the only thing is, you know, Crosby's only 33. He's not the best player in the world anymore. Uh, I think we can all agree number 97 in Edmonton is now that guy. But he's still Crosby. He's still great. You can still build a team around him for a few more years. So I, I'm I'm very curious to see what route they take. I'm glad you bring up Crosby because when they, you know, kind of started out of the gate there or stumbled out of the gate, rather, there was a lot of talks about will he want to be moved. Darren Jagger in particular brought up the potential scenario, obviously spitballing about him going to the Colorado Avalanche. Obviously, those discussions have been put on hold based on the run that the Penguins have gone on. But do you have a feeling one way or another, and I believe we touched on this last time you were on, one way or another on where he may fall if this team does, in fact, enter a rebuild? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And I've had a lot of people ask me this question, and I heard all those rumors. Um, Crosby has always made it very clear to me that he has no intentions of ever playing anywhere else. And it's interesting with him. Uh, his hero as a child was Steve Eiserman. And he and Mario Lemieux are now really, really close. I mean, they are good friends. They lived together for years. Those are his two biggest influences in hockey. And unlike Wayne Gretzky and Bobby Orr and Gordie Howe or whatever hockey legends you want to think of, Lemieux and Eiserman only ever played for one team. And Crosby loves that about them. He, I mean, he talked about it before, is how cool he thinks that is and how he'd like to have a similar legacy. So I don't think he would ever want to leave. And you always hear about like Canadian teams. It was always like, well, maybe to Montreal. Sid would not want to play in Canada, I don't think, because he, he loves that he has a fairly private life in Pittsburgh. And he can't even go out to dinner in Toronto or Montreal. I mean, he's such of a rock star in Canada. So I don't really think he'd want to play there. Colorado, if he ever did play anywhere else, would make the most sense. He and Nathan McKinnon are extremely close friends. They're both from the same hometown, of course. And I, I'm sure Sid would look uh, pretty good as a 2C in Colorado in a few years. I don't think anybody would uh, deny how much fun that would be to watch, but I, I think it's unlikely. I, I really think Crosby wants to finish his career in Pittsburgh. Uh, the only thing I would say is that if Malkin and Latang do move on in the next couple of years, uh, those are his two best friends on the team. And that, that probably would be tough for him uh, to play without them. He's literally been with them almost his entire career. So that would be a challenge for him, but uh, the odds are, in my opinion, he's not ever going to go anywhere. What kind of leash does head coach Mike Sullivan have? I think it's still fairly long. You know, if you know your Penguins history at all, you know they love to fire coaches. And <laughs> every time they fire a coach, they win the cup a few months later. I mean, it literally yeah. has happened three different times in their history. Um, so you always have that in the back of your mind. But I think Sullivan's a great coach, and I, I think the Penguins are a really hard team to coach. Malkin and Latang are just hard to coach, and they just are. They don't do a coach. They're not bad guys at all, but they just they are kind of freelancing out there. And Phil Kessel, of course, was a nightmare for any head coach in some ways. So it's a tough job in Pittsburgh. It just is. 
But um, my belief is that his job is pretty secure for the time being. I, I happen to think he's done a very good job with this team. And, and the fact of the matter is, if he were a free agent on the coaching market, he would be swapped up in about two seconds. Um, he's just one of those guys. He's won two cups. He has a presence about him. Uh, and also, keep this in mind, guys. He's got three years left on his contract after this, guaranteed money. Um, I don't know to the dollar what he makes, but I assume it's in the 4 to $5 million range. Um, that'd be, what, $14, 15000000 million they would have to pay along with a new coach's salary. Given how much money they've lost in the last few years, I don't think they want to do that. In fact, I know they don't want to. And so unless the Penguins would plummet and miss the playoffs and maybe start next season poorly, I don't think he has much to worry about. Well, i got one more for you here, and it's the most difficult question we ask all of our guests. Ooh. What do you think of the Penguins reverse retro jerseys? Uh, I hate them, actually. (laughs) Um, Here's the thing. The Penguins jersey that they wore, the road jersey in the early 90s, which was the black jersey with the diagonal gold Pittsburgh, as we call it in Pittsburgh, the Snoop Dogg jersey, which he once wore in uh, the Gin and Juice video. Um, Oh, my God. (laughs) That's the greatest Penguins jersey in history. It's astounding that they don't wear it all the time, or at least as their third jersey. Um, I shouldn't say I hate it, but I, I just don't like it. It's not very dynamic. I like a lot of the third unis that are on the league right now. I just don't care for this one at all. I, I don't like it in person. I don't like it in t- on TV. And I say that because some jerseys look way better in person than you might think, and some kind of pop more on TV. But uh, this one just kind of feels underwhelming to me. I, I feel like they had uh, choices they could have gone with that would have been better. I just want the Snoop Dogg jersey back. That's the one. Trust me, everybody in Pittsburgh loves that jersey. They would sell like crazy if they would bring them back. You still see them in the arena everywhere. I see, like, number 66 is everywhere with the diagonal Pittsburgh, and, and number 68's everywhere still. So I, I'm, I, I give it, like, a C-. minus. I don't care for it. They've kind of switched around their jerseys several times over the last 30 years, huh? Oh, yeah. I mean— they have. They used to wear. A lot of people don't know. They used to wear blue in the '60s and '70s, and then the Penguin or the Steelers were winning Super Bowls, and the Pirates were winning World Series a long time ago, of course, in the '70s. But <laughs> you know, they both wear black and gold. I guess we should wear black and gold. So they started doing that, and I think it was January of 1980, and the Boston Bruins like flipped out. Like Harry Sinden went crazy about it because those were Boston's colors and. There was like legitimate resentment between the organizations for a long time because of that. So the, they went black and gold for a while. Um, and yeah, they do change it up a good bit. I actually like the ones that wear, they wear right now, which is actually what they wore in the early 90s. I think they look pretty good. But uh, the Snoop Dogg jersey needs to come back as far as I'm concerned. Well, Josh, thank you very much for taking time today to talk to us and uh, stay safe out there. Uh you as well, my pleasure, and I uh, hope you don't have too many more nine nothings in the future. <laughs> I, watched, I watched it last night, and uh, I'm from Pittsburgh, so I can't instinctively feel bad for the Flyers. But man, <laughs> man, was that rough! Holy cow! <laughs> <laughs> well, we appreciate your sympathy. Dead <laughs> <laughs> <Stay> easy. <sighs> All right, everybody. That was Josh Yohe. Great interview. Uh, he was spot on with the jersey info, by the way. I had that page pulled up, and it was the uh, winter of 1980 that they switched over there to the uh, black and gold. So he was spot on. So uh, he knew it by heart. <laughs> some some great info there uh, from a Pennsylvania team that plays well, and this Pennsylvania team, on the other hand, and the Philadelphia Flyers, 
For those of you that haven't heard, uh, took a 9-0 loss last night, and, you know, we were texting during the game, and, and you go, man, this is going to be a great episode tomorrow. And I'm like, is it really? I just, I, I, we, this is the 91st episode of Brotherly Pod. I believe we've done about 320 or so under the whole Brotherly Pod umbrella over the last, you know, three, four years, and I, I don't think I've ever truly been speechless after a hockey game before, and, uh. It's kind of how I feel right now. I, I don't know what to say about their performance or where they're at as a whole. Um, the term rock bottom, I think, is something we have used at least once, uh, once a year over the last you know five years or so. But I, I think last night may truly have genuinely been rock bottom. How could it possibly get worse than what we saw last night? 9-0. Zero defense, zero heart. There was no fight in them in any sense of the word. You know, nobody dropped the gloves. Nobody put up any kind of thing. There was no big checks. There was no rallying the troops. Nothing. I mean, this this last night was rock bottom. I, I can't convince it doesn't get worse than this. We've seen losses like this before. But the difference is, is that theoretically, this is a team that should be contending. When we saw losses like this under Haxtell and Hextall, there was never one season under that regime where the ultimate goal was winning a Stanley Cup. Yeah, It was always building towards two or three years from now, the infamous phrase. So when they'll get their asses kicked back then, it was like almost like, well, yeah, you know, like Provorov's coming, these guys are coming, prospects are coming, still young, we're not ready to contend, this, that, and the other thing. Coming off of last season and into this season, and I remember um, a pundit or so-called pundit, a fake insider, for lack of better terms, <laughs> had a prediction that the Flyers were going to win a cup, like many people did before the season started. And in his mentions, there was arguments over who Giroux was going to pass the cup to first. <laughs> they were arguing about this. Who Giroux was going to pass the cup to first. So that in and of itself is ridiculous. Oh, God. But aside from how asinine that comment is, that's where I think a lot of the, the pundits thought, as Josh said, a Pittsburgh guy, he thought the Flyers were going to win the division. I certainly did not. Um, so for so many people to think that, for a loss like last night, on top of everything we've seen this season, that's why I think it's rock bottom. Because where do you go? You know, they've changed the general manager, the entire front office, the entire coaching staff. They, they've added players. All their prospects are developed. Like, all their bullets are gone. They have no bullets left in the chamber, in my opinion, to salvage this. Like, I mean... Even Eckholm, and I believe you watched what Bob McKenzie said in the intermission last night as well. Like, okay, you can go get Eckholm, but quite honestly, what changes here? Like, don't get me wrong. I love Eckholm as much as the next guy, but he has always been a number three defenseman, if not number four in Nashville. So, like, what, you're going to come in here, throw him on his off wing, playing the right side with Provorov and expect him to solve everything? Like, it's – and don't get me wrong. Like, I, do, I don't want them to not make any moves. But it's just – last night, 
magnified everything that's wrong with this team. And unlike in years past, where you could say, well, you know, eventually they're going to get rid of this coach, or eventually Hextall or another GM will start, will like come in and make start making moves, or you know, all these other things. Everything's changed. All the prospects are here. This was eight years in the making, or whatever it is, and the payoff is whatever the hell this is. It's the game where you you change something. But it's 2.39 p.m. here on Thursday afternoon, and nothing's changed. And what can they change? Even if they do something just to appease the bloodlust of the fans and, you know, say, fire Michelle Terrian, like, that's great and all. And the power play may improve slightly, but it's the same players. How many people have held that position since Joe Mullen left? Like, two or three now, right? And it's been the same thing <laughs> since, the, since, since he left. It's just stale. I don't know what you do here and you referenced the Bob McKenzie thing it's very similar to what we talked about on Monday uh, being that you can go get Ekholm but is one person enough are you going to pay a premium outbid a team like Winnipeg who's far more desperate than the Flyers are you know to win a cup right now you know that are going to be more willing to throw you know all their 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 books in the fire to the fuck the phrases you know and, and try and get Ekholm and make it work you know and in this case if you're the fucking Flyers and you're as gun-shy as they have been, and if they have, for for whatever reason, intend on keeping Travis Sanheim around, like, Lord help us all, but they can protect, you know, Provorov, Myers, and Sanheim, and they go out and get Ekholm, you give up Frost and two firsts for Ekholm, then you lose Ekholm at the fucking expansion draft, you lose all the assets and Ekholm, that doesn't make any fucking sense, right? So... Yeah, but uh, Mackenzie was essentially saying, you know, why give up what you can for one player that ultimately isn't going to be a difference maker, you know? And Ekholm would improve the team uh, drastically, but it's not enough. It's certainly not enough, you know? And and looking at the standings here, the the Flyers are in fifth place in the East, and they're already 11 points behind the Capitals and Islanders, who are tied for first, you know? The Flyers have three, uh, two games in hand on the Caps and three on the Islanders, but that's not going to cover a lot of ground. The Penguins have been trending in the right direction. Lately. Boston has uh, stumbled a bit, but they still have a three-point lead on them with no games in hand. So I don't know what you do here. You got a relatively easy swing coming up, uh, despite these three fucking Islanders games they have uh, tonight, Saturday, and Monday. Uh, but then you got the, the Devils, Rangers, Rangers, Sabres, Sabres. You know, you got that. And then you have a five-game swing with the Islanders and Bruins again. You know, if this... Granted, by the time they even make it to this easy swing with these three-game Islanders, they could be completely buried. But I don't know, man. I don't know what you do. I, I You have to shake up this roster substantially. I Just tear it the fuck down and start again for all I care. This is a bad product here. There's no salvaging this and and that brings me to what i'm most concerned about does chuck fletcher have the the balls do the flyers have the you know economical financial backings to to do something like that to get rid of Giroux and voracek and jvr and uh, you know konechny and sanheim and my like clear this fucking thing out and start again and i'm just totally stuck in the nothing's ever going to change thing here 
They're going to go into the trade deadline and nothing's going to happen because they fucking suck. And they're going to go in the offseason and nothing's going to change because, well, it's a flat salary cap. There are no moves to be made. And we're going to go into this next season and do this exact same thing over again. I'm just going to – I just don't see an end on the horizon here. And it's just it, – it's fucking killing me. Well, it's because, like, forget about this season. But even in the offseason, like, what if he just, like, goes into the offseason – signs like david savard and like alex goligoski signs like a depth centerman and then he and then we come back like okay exactly. is the defense it's just like okay like you added to the defense it's better but at, at a certain point i'm almost just like it's not just the defense like i'm sorry like there's something intangibly wrong here like, you could add, like I said, like, even if you added Ekholm and Larson before the deadline and you improved it on, let's say, Phil Myers, who's just a goddamn tire fire right now, and Robert Hegg, like, even if you add those pieces, like, what's this going to change? And it comes back to what I said on Monday, that there's something here that seems off intangibly and you know we say it all the time that we don't like to you know theorize what's going on in the room but it's like there's only been one constant here for the duration of these seven years and that's the guys who wear the letters on their jerseys Giroux, Voracek, Couturier to a lesser extent you know even the depth guys like Raffle and Lawton like at a certain point, like, is anything going to change no matter how many players you bring in as long as these guys are just here? And I brought up before or on Monday, like, let's say you bring in a guy like Ekholm to be a leader and you want Farabee to take that next step and Provov to be the next step as the leaders of the team. Are they going to be able to do that while the old guard is here? And, you know, I brought up how the Leafs got out all of their old, you know, leaders. The The Senators did the same thing. Even the Montreal Canadiens, like, they, they got rid of Patre, they got rid of Subban, they got rid of Placanic, they got rid of Markov, and they brought in, like, this new crop of leaders, like Weber and Gallagher and all these guys. And I just, I don't know how you can come back, and, you know, the Rangers are another example. Like, McDonough's gone, like, okay, they kept Chris Kreider around, but it, it's... It's just like this feeling that like no matter how much they add to the pre-existing core, as long as that pre-existing core is here, like is it going to change? Like the attitude and you know I saw like the LA Vign- the Fire Vigneault like the oh, discussion God. and chants are getting louder and louder. And you know what? Like I'm not even going to sit here and defend Alain Vigneault. I think he's made a lot of decisions, but one. I think that it just reeks of desperation and he just doesn't know what to do anymore. And two, and it was actually Puck Sauce who put this out here, and usually I disagree with him, but it was true. He said he's a year and 27 games into this, into his tenure, and they've already seemingly quit on him. Something's yeah. wrong. Yeah, that's true. It, it, you know, like, I don't know. I, I've said before, you know, I don't know what the hell to make of Alamio right now. Uh, he's not doing the best job but at the same time what the fuck can he do <laughs> you know he's shuffling the deck chairs in the titanic at this point with the defense and you know there's only so many different combinations you can make with the offense and he's tried them all over the last year and 
I just don't know, you know, whether they, they quit on him. And again, this is stuff that, that's hard to theorize not being in the room. But the finger pointing is getting limited. You know, as you mentioned, they changed GMs. The front office is different. The entire coaching staff was cleaned out. Like, who's left to blame but Giroux and Voracek and Raffle and Lawton and JVR? These people that have been here for fucking ever, you know. Look at the fucking Blackhawks. Their Stanley Cup wins from 2010 to 2015. Seven. Seven players are the only constant that have been there through that entire five years. Seven people on the Flyers have been there for like ten. You know, well, it, like, it, nothing's ever going to fucking change until this group changes. And I have zero fucking confidence that Fletcher is going to do anything about that. And that's what fucking pisses me off here. I didn't want to get heated on this goddamn show, but here we are. Because nothing ever changes. What are they going to do, trade Giroux this offseason? That's not going to happen. Are they going to let Voracek go to Seattle? That's not going to happen. You know, I just, I don't understand how you can look at a product like this and not be fucking furious anymore. Whether you're a fan or whether you're Dave Scott. And Dave Scott doesn't give a shit because he's a Comcast talking head. You know, Snyder's dead. Holmgren's gone. Clark's gone. Nobody cares anymore. As long as they're making their money, because our dumb asses are going to go to the Wells Fargo Center every night and sit our happy ass down there and pay 25 bucks for a beer, they don't give a shit. So why should we? You know? We're just going to keep feeding what we're taking. And for what it's worth, the natives are finally starting to get restless. Even the most positive of positive assholes over the last couple games have really started to turn. Which is great. But until it gets worse than this, I'm just not convinced anything's going to change. What can change right now? If you don't fucking cut the snake off at its head, then you're just going to leave it out there and it's going to keep doing damage. You know? Something has to change and it has to be legitimate. You know, Mike, uh, uh, Rafflin Lawton are up at the end of this year. I would assume both of them don't come back. Certainly not both of them coming back, just for financial reasons there. But, like... It's so easy to sit here, and, and especially the approach Fletcher's had over the last calendar year or so, to look and go, well, you can re-sign Roth and Lawton for relatively small cap hits. You can re-sign Patrick for literally nothing at this point. And then you can just re-sign Sanheim at a reasonable rate, bring him in. If you want to lose one of these guys, you know, Gustafson's contract is up. They should have the money to do it. And just re-sign him, and let's try again next year. Like, the easy out here is scary, you know, because it's feasible, <laughs> Doing things like getting rid of Voracek and Giroux and, and JVR, like all these guys that are making obscene amounts of money, you know, that's not going to be easy. And thus, I don't fucking believe Fletcher's going to do it, right? Like, I just... I... <sighs> Since the beginning of 2017-18, they have had Brian Elliott, Sean Couturier, Claude Giroux, Shane Gossesbeer, Robert Hag, Travis Konechny, Scott Lawton, Nolan Patrick, Ivan Provorov, Michael Roffel, Travis Christ. Sanheim, and Jake Voracek. That's like the 12. entire roster. <laughs> that is quite literally more than half of the roster that has been the same for four years. Four years! <laughs> like, With what? one playoff series win, and... That's about it. What the fuck and else has like, it done in four years? It's like, why is... Like, even Robert Hag, like, it's like, why is he still here? 
why is Gossett Spear Rothful? Like, and it's not even that I don't like these players. Lawton, too. Like, and, like, you know, I put out a tweet before last night, and I said, like, if they did decide to become sellers, you could trade Scott Lawton to a team like the Toronto Maple Leafs and get a very good return for him. Kind of like what happened with Barkley, Goudreau, Blake Coleman last year, Vermette, all those years ago. And then I get people saying, like, no, no, not him. Yep. No, no, we can't. <laughs> yep. Sorry. And it's just like, okay, so everyone says we got to change the culture. It's crap. It's this. It's that. But all they want to do is change Robert Hag. No, uh, no, not even Nolan Patrick. Brian Elliott. Fire the entire coaching staff. Not even Elliott at were... this point. They like Elliott more than Hart. <laughs> well, then she say there was a guy who said, we got to turn over the whole roster except for Hayes, Giroux, <laughs> Voracek, Farabee. There Pro was a Rob guy. Said, I put out a tweet yesterday. Yeah, yeah. We need to change. Okay, we got to deal Sandheim. Nope. We can deal a prospect. Nope. We got to cash out on JV Arngars. Nope. And somebody say, well, we can make a change, but we got to do it. But we got to keep Giroux, Voracek, Sandheim, Myers, Farabee, Lindblom, uh, uh, the other guy, Lawton. I'm like, that's half the fucking roster and half of the problem. <laughs> so we can get rid of players as long as it's Robert Higg, Justin Braun, and Connor Bunneman. You know, outside of that, no, oh, oh, Daniel, don't think about touching this team. You know, it's like, fuck, I saw people blame the loss on Andy Andrioff last night. Like, at what point? Can I just, it's just comedy right now. Just throw my hands up in the air and laugh. By the time the Rangers scored their seven, eight, and nine goals last night, I was actively laughing my ass off on my couch. Because it, what else is there to do? You know? I just, I hate it here. What am I doing with my life? I tweeted out that epiphany. I wrote a piece this morning where I just vented. You know, it's on BradleyPuck.com now. It's like, I had an epiphany last. They scored the uh, early in the second period. It's 3 nothing, And I just, like, woke up. Like, what am I doing with my life? Wh th this doesn't make me happy. I'm not actively enjoying the Flyers. Granted, it's been a fucking long time since I say I have. But why? Why am I still dedicating five hours of my life to doing podcasting a week and spending my entire weekend writing articles all week? Like, what am I doing? Why am I putting so much time and effort into this shit for a team that doesn't give a fuck about me, the viewer? You know? Like, have some fucking dignity. That was more what pissed me off last night than anything. Like, punch somebody! Throw a fucking check! You know, they skate around nothing! No heart, no life. Travis Sanheim and Phil Myers just standing there like complete assholes as Mika Zabinijad dances right around him and scores. Like... Have some fucking dignity. You know, go out, die on your sword. What the fuck happened to the team where Razor, uh, uh Razor, Ray Emery kicked the shit out of Braden Holpe and Vin LeCavier punched out, uh, Devontae Smith-Pelly? Like, what happened to those games? You know? Jesus Christ. I know Emery's dead, but fuck. Why? Why can't we have something like that now? Wasn't that, wasn't that the whole point Andrew was in the lineup last night? Specifically to punch people? And look how that turned out. They didn't do shit, but it was his fault they lost. Oh, my fucking blood pressure's through the roof. To be to be honest, it's like it's just, and it's funny because I've come on here a few times and said, you know, as for bad, as for as mediocre as this team is playing, my my outlook on this team and my opinion on this team will not change until the playoffs. It's changed. It's changed. 
for the for the worse because I was fully confident and you could go back before we did this show both of us said that they're going to make the playoffs and if if they don't something seriously went fucking wrong <laughs> something seriously is going wrong here you we uh and, let's see here you had the flyers second place in the east I had the Flyers third place in the East at the beginning of the year in our standings here that we predicted. I thought they and would I, make it, but yeah. uh, doesn't look like that's the case anymore, considering first and second are so far out of reach. You better hope that the Bruins keep sliding here and give them a fighting chance to even make it. But if they go into this series with the Islanders and lose all three games or two of the three games, they're pretty much buried already. And we still have half a season to play yet. Yeah, they're going to need to pull one of their famous Dave Haxtell 10-game win streaks out of their asshole just to make something work here. Like, they're already in desperation mode here. And if the Rangers keep catching ground, they're even more fucked. They could be in sixth place in the East before the end of the day. Who the fuck? Even the most negative person didn't think they would be this bad, right? Even Nick wasn't fucking this negative on the team beforehand. But Christ. What? What? Yeah. What? I don't, I don't even know what to say. What what went so wrong here? This is a team that on paper should be at least relatively decent. And they're not. Nothing about this team is. Outside of Joel Farabee and JVR and Sean Couturier, that line has been fine. But outside of that, you're getting occasional sparks from Claude Giroux and Voracek. But what the fuck? Other than that, I mean, nobody on the defense has been good. Nobody. The goaltending has been shit. You know, Brian Elliott's trying his goddamnedest at 35 years old or whatever he is to go out there and try and make something happen. Carter Hart's a head case. And you got a whole bunch of forwards that aren't producing. You know, like, the, the, the you're so broken from top to bottom on this team that, and it's so easy for fans to go, well, just fire Lane Vio. But what are, <laughs> what are you going to do? Are you going to bring in, you know, Bruce Boudreaux and put him behind the bench and say, here you go, Bruce, you fucking toe. Go figure this shit out, you know? You can't do that. Is anybody even going to take this job? It's like when they fired Ralph Kruger there. Who the fuck is going to step behind that bench <laughs> with how fucked up things are? Like, you're pretty much in the same line of fire here, except you're slightly better team in the Philadelphia Flyers. Just the same goddamn mess. You know, until something changes with the players, you can't fire the coach, you know. And if they do, which I don't know if it's off the table at this point, and I have no idea what the fuck Vigneault's job safety is. Theoretically, they shouldn't be, but they may have no choice but to do it just simply because they can't destroy half their roster, right? Like, something has to give sooner or later. They can't They can't reasonably sit on their, uh, their thumbs for forever, can they? <laughs> It, it seems like sooner or later it's going to reach a breaking point because I, I just I don't think that Fletcher is going to fire Vigneault. Like, I, I just I can't see it. And no. look, like I'll come back to this Vigneault thing first. I'm not here defending the guy, but I I saw what he did last season with a good roster, not a great roster, a good roster. The Jack Adams finalist. Exactly. Less than a year ago. <laughs> I would like to see what he can do with a cup contending roster. Honestly. And and it kind of reminds me, and I'll and I'll kind of re- refer to like John Stevens here, that there were times in 07, 08, and 08, 09 when you could have made the case that he should have been fired. But 
at the same time, in those two years, their goaltending and defense weren't good enough to win a Stanley Cup. They weren't. But when they brought in Chris Pronger and they brought in Ray Emery and they brought in LaPerriere for 0-9-10 and they were just right there to win a Stanley Cup and they were in the bottom of the standings by early December, you canned them because that was a cup contending roster. I don't know, to your point, what another coach is going to do differently here. So let, let's just say they fire Alain Vigneault, they fire Michel Therrien, they bring in Gerard Gallon to be the head coach and Bruce Boudreau as the assistant. What could realistically happen? They they go on a bit of a hot streak. They sneak into the third or fourth seed, and then they win a round. Best, 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 best case scenario because of, you know, the, the new coach bump. But then after that, are we not just back to square one next It wears season? off, and you're left with the same team again. Exactly. So it's it's not even like I'm opposed to it 100%. I'm not married to Alain Vigneault. But based on what he's done, even if you go back with the Rangers and the Canucks, I think he's good enough to get a cup-contending roster where it needs to be. But yeah. this is not that. So what is another coach going to do? And I hear a lot of people say, like, oh, you know, like, he's bad for young players. Like, excuse me, I don't know. I think the way he's handled Joel Farabee has been fantastic from the get-go. Not for anything. I know he's had a horrible stretch of games here recently, and I know you're not his biggest fan, but I think Sanheim has been best under Alain Vigneault. So, like, I mean, what what do you want me to do? Like, what do you want him to do, rather? Just litter the team with young players, and if he doesn't litter the team with players 22 years or younger, he's bad for young players? You see that last night? Was it, uh, I don't remember who the hell it was. They're like, oh, well, you know, they lost because AV didn't deploy his best lineups properly because Goss's Bear was sitting last night. Oh, and it's like, for sake. fuck's sake. Like, yes, Robert Haig <laughs> playing instead of Shane Goss's Bear is the reason why they lost 9-0. Sure of it. Andrioff playing instead of Lindblom was the reason they lost 9-0. I'm sure of it. Fuck off. And even the day like, we stop blaming the depth guys for all the top guys' problems, the day actual change happens here. Remember last year when it was Carson Terinsky's fault mm-hmm. that everything sucked? Thompson. I had a guy tell me that Terinsky's a valuable trade chip, by the way. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> I, like, I hate it here. I, I don't think people realize that valuable trade chips like even like the lower end of the trade chips that they have is scott lawton and people don't even want to trade him (laughs) and he's not like the lower end you got lawton raffle haig maybe braun and as far as prospects go the only one with any kind of legitimate value is probably morgan frost maybe zimula too but i don't think you can give up on him just yet considering you're gonna need all the fucking help you can get on the blue line like you don't have a whole lot of prospects. And that was the one thing I put out the, the top five crazy trade scenario piece at the beginning of the week before shit completely hit the fan. And uh, it's the one thing, every time I write a trade piece, you know, and I try to make all these wacky trades as fair as possible, like, the one thing I keep coming back to is there's so little legitimate trade value on this team. You know, if you take out the big contracts which aren't going to move, which disqualifies Giroud, Voracek, Hayes, JVR, like... Your depth guys are pretty much fucking useless and Raffle and Lawton and Aubie Kubel. You know, Patrick's value is at an all-time fucking low. Maybe you can squeeze out of him a team that, uh, 
you know, would be interested in second overall status. But, like, Konechny and Sanheim are more or less your best trade ships right now. And that's about it as far as making legitimate moves if you want to add something, you know, or, or shake things up until you go and have the resources to clear somebody like Voracek. Like, you don't have... It, it, that's where the, the downfall of hope comes here is clearing all these top guys. Like, that's not going to be easy, you know. If they don't go into Seattle and exploit them any way they possibly can to get rid of Voracek and or JVR, you know, I don't know. Like, <laughs> you can't let this opportunity to clear all this cap go by and get rid of these veteran players. You just can't. And I'm terrified that he's going to because, again, it goes back to just, well, they can lose Abe Kubel. That's non consequential. Who cares? Nobody's going to be angry. And then they move on. Actually, people will be very angry because it's Abe Kubel and they fucking love these death guys for whatever reason. So. <sighs> I'm going to drink tonight. Fuck it. I ain't watching this game. Well, what, like, what do you think is the solution to this? Because I put out a tweet yesterday. That was basically saying, like, I don't know if you the if there's any other way out of this than just a scorched earth rebuild, like what the Leafs did. That they, you know, coming out of like that Sundin Caberlet era, they tried to do like that rebuild on the fly with Burke, with like JVR and Kessel and Bozak and Kadri and all those guys. And then, you know, they they made it to one playoff round, they made some noise here, and then the famous 18 wheeler going off the cliff. And then they eventually had to just gut the entire organization from the from literally ownership all the way down to the ice. And now I think they're going to be one of the best teams in the NHL for the next five years. Do you see any parallels between the two? And do you think they could theoretically get out of this without doing a scorched earth rebuild like that? I just don't see a way they can get out of this as is you know and and you can't just fire Vino and give him the same roster because it's not going to work we've already tried that you can't fire the gm and let him replace the coach or whatever you know, they've already cleared the front office it's clearly related to the players but you know is the entire product spoiled at this point you know is there anything salvageable you know if this was up to me and the salary cap, you know, wasn't a thing and you can do whatever you want, you keep Joel Farabee, you keep Oscar Lindblom, and you gut everything else. Like, that's what I would do if I was in charge here. Fuck this team. You know, get as many draft picks and prospects as you can for these guys while they still have talent and try again and hope to shit that in three or four years' time this team is ready to go like a Maple Leafs, like a New York Rangers, like, you know, whatever. That's the... The options are starting to be few and far between, you know, here, as far as what can reasonably be done with making some of this stuff. And and I don't know what's left. You know, that that it's quickly becoming the only option they have is to clean out this goddamn team from top to bottom and try again. I, I don't know what else you do here. Like I said, you can fire Vigneault, you can fire Tarion, but is that a long-term solution? The answer is no, you know, because we've seen it happen already. You gave up on Elaine Vigneault, who's a perfectly fine coach who's been to two Stanley Cup finals. They gave up on him in a year and a half, you know. If you think you think they won't give up on Gerard Gallant or Boudreaux or, or Claude Julien, whoever the fuck is out there these days, it's going to be the same thing, 
So the only way I see going about this is just you got to start burning this team to the ground and get rid of everybody. Even if you get rid of Giroud at this point, it's going to suck. It's not going to be fun. But if it means that in a couple years' time, this team is better and actually competitive, then it may just be what what ends up happening here. It, it's uh, I'm starting to think it's the only way yeah. because, like I said, if you even just quote unquote fix the defense and you bring in like I like anything short of a Dougie Hamilton, I don't think would change anything drastically. But like, let's say you even. Let's say you bring in, you, you hit the jackpot, you're able to bring in Hamilton and let's say Adam Larson for next season. Yeah, the defense looks fucking great, but do you think, like, just like, do you think it's going to be enough? Like, do you think they could win with this, this core group of players, even if they do theoretically bring in the, like, the proper defenseman? I don't think so. Now they got Cam York on the horizon. He may be here within the next month. But, like, that's kind of, like, what I'm coming back to is that after I see losses, like, last night, it's just like, yes, the defense is a big fucking problem. But it, I think it goes beyond that. I think it's just fundamentally, like you've said so many times over the last six or seven months, that I just think it's so far gone past adding a defenseman or two and a third-line center, yeah. which is what we thought during the offseason. You need to add a defenseman or two and a third line center and preferably some toughness with some of those players. But now it's like, I don't know if the leaders and the guys steering this shift, shift, ship or shift, whatever, (laughs) are good enough, even if they have proper defensemen and some proper depth. I, I don't know anymore because teams like this, like, or games like this are indicative of a team that's quit. And if you've quit on another coach, what is it? A year and a half in, like, like you said, what else is going to change? Like, and, and then let's say you do want to, you know, shake up the core and you want to move on from Voracek and Giroux. And again, I still think Sean Couturier, I, I like, you're going to move out these guys and what are you going to get back? Are you going to be able to get, you know, pieces back that could help you win in the here and now. I don't know. Like, like I said, if you move from move on from Giroux, you're probably going to get, you know, picks and prospects for him. If you move on from Voracek, you're sure as hell's not going to get fair value because, and you may lose him for nothing just for Seattle to take him because the contract is so egregious. The only guy that you could theoretically swap out, or there's two guys that you could theoretically swap out and get equal trade value for in quote unquote hockey trades and that's Couturier and Konechny. But it's... Are you going to get back equal enough value? Like, you could trade a Konechny for uh, Anthony Mantha or Tyler Bertuzzi, which I'll do tomorrow. But again, is that is one sole move like that going to change this thing? Like, I, I'm just starting to believe that until the entire leadership group of this team gets a major facelift, everything else and every other possible acquisition will be for nothing. You need to trade for Bertuzzi, you need to trade for Ekholm, you need to sign Dougie Hamilton, you need to sign David Savard, you need to go out and, you know, find another top six winger. Like, by the time you do all that, you're, you know, may as well just burn the team to the fucking ground anyway. You know, you're, they're in such a weird 
shitty spot right now. And there's a bit of news here. Uh, they've placed Robert Haig on IR with an upper body injury and have recalled Alex Lyon, Nate Prosser, and Carson Turinsky from the Taxi Squad. Yeehaw! I'm so sick of seeing these names, man. I'm just so over it. I, I just... I. I'm just so like even Robert Hag like I I know he's taken way too much shit over the years but I'm just why is he here for the love of God why is this guy here Hey he signed for next season too I know at one point six million dollars Yep it, it's just and it's like you said like you could go out and get Ekholm and Savard and Bertuzzi and this guy and that, but then by the end, you've spent so much money, so then you have to subtract from other places of the lineup. And I think I've said this numerous times, is like, it seems like no matter what hole or problem they address, by doing that, it opens up another one. Because they have a bunch of these big-ticket contracts and a bunch of these quote-unquote prospects with high potential who haven't done anything and haven't lived up to expectations that like it's like I, I look at a team like Ottawa okay that literally gutted it to the ground and they're and they're brutal this season a lar- in large part to goaltending but I'm just like I watch that team and it's fun because they're trying and they're learning and they're all young and again they have so much runway left and then you get uh like this team that the best players are on the wrong side of 30. The top two centermen are going to be 29 within the next six months. You don't have any centermen who project to be top six forwards in the system. I mean, unless you, unless you want to keep beating the Morgan Frost drum. Aside from Joel Faraby, you have no forward under the age of 23, 24 that looks like a bona fide top line player for the foreseeable future. Konechny has slid so far back. Limblom's working his way back. Patrick's useless. Like, it's just such a weird mix of like g- older veterans on the back nine of their career that are doing the best they can, but aren't good enough as they used to be. And a bunch of young players who aren't holding up their end of the bargain because there's too much smoke blown up their ass. Like even Sanheim and Myers, like, I'm sorry. I know Sanheim is the one you hate, but I'm not going to lie. Phil Myers to me, I-, I don't give a fuck if he's good in two or three years. If I could trade him and get value for him, I'd do it. I'm sorry. He has been the biggest disappointment for a guy with his offensive tools and raw skill and size and everything. He is just an absolute tire fire. Like, he literally looks like a turkey running out there, sliding around, can't block a pass, doesn't use his his imposing physical structure, like, just nothing. Like, at least Sanheim, you could say he moves the puck well. He knows what to do in the offensive zone. He at least brings some attributes to the game. I hate the way he plays around his own net without the puck. And he's incredibly soft. But at least he brings something tangible. Myers, I don't even know what he's good at right now. I hate them both. How about that? I hate them both. But do I don't you know think what I've I mean? ever collectively seen a worse defensive effort than I have with Myers. Like, Andrew McDonald never once looked as bad as Myers and Sanheim did last night. But who's the worst out of both of them, in your opinion, right now? Hmm. That's a loaded question, now, isn't it? I want to say Sanheim <laughs> just because I hate him more. But but <laughs> but Myers specifically Myers last night was was a little bit worse. But it's, they both it, suck. It, they do. They're they not do, good but... at playing defense. That's the problem. You got two defensemen there that are the softest human beings I've ever seen, and they're like six five. 
Like, come the fuck on. <sighs> yeah, it's... Like, it. at least Provorov and Braun, like, they try. Like, Provorov, too. Like, I don't know how people could watch last night and still blame Provorov. Mika Blake McCurdy did. Oh, what did he say? Something about, oh, well, I guess Provorov helps in the power play now or something, you know, snarky like that. You know what? People could, I hope, in some way, I hope they trade Provorov. He goes to Winnipeg and he becomes the stud defenseman for that team for the next 10 years. May as well. Like, I'm so sick of people blaming Ivan Provorov. Like, has he played well? No. Has he been subject to a rotating defensive cast of partners that is just an absolute tire fire? Yes. Why? Like, there is no justification you could give me that says that Justin Braun should be on a top pair or Phil Myers or Robert Hag or Shane Gostisbehere. Like, it's... If they trade Ivan Provorov, and, I mean, I guess if they do a scorch or a rebuild, then, like, I mean, all bets are off. I would still keep him, but at that point, like, who cares? But if they trade Ivan Provorov to try and make a lateral move as a hockey trade type of thing, they are going to... It's going to kick them in the ass for a long, long time. Because you could bring in anyone... Any defenseman in the NHL right now, not named Yossi and Victor Hedman... And they, they would just have be having just as many problems as Ivan Provorov right now. Yep, he's out there completely alone. You you have you're playing with Ivan Provorov, who I would say is a one, but let's say a lower end one. No number two, Sanheim, who's like right now a lower end three, and then no number four. And then in my mind, a very like I like the way Justin Braun plays. I think he plays the quote unquote. I know this is maybe like um, a bit of a overusing, but I think he plays the right way. But you have to use him properly. Like for me, Phil Myers right now isn't an NHL defenseman with the way he's playing. Robert Hag, Eric Gustafson never want to see them again. Shane Gossesbeer, like okay, sure, he's probably a, a a very solid third pairing defenseman, but like. He has extreme limitations in the lineup who can't play the penalty kill. So you're effectively playing with no number two, no number four, and a bunch of mediocre uh, bottom pair defensemen other than Justin Braun. Yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, Phil Meyer, I don't think he's an NHL player right now, personally. I don't think any of these fucking idiots are NHL players right now. Yeah, it's... And then, like, and then even, like, I know people just want to keep going around, the, beating around the bush with this, but even, like, the Sean Couturier contract thing, like, uh, he, him, for, like, and I've said this a few times over the last six months or so, and you've echoed this as well, but he may be their only ace in the hole here to turn this thing around by moving him. And I know people are going to freak out, but he's, like, the only guy that I think you have on your roster right now that you could trade and get like a franchise altering return for. Yep. I've written multiple pieces now, multiple blockbuster pieces that tens of thousands of people have read that, uh, you know, you trade him, trade him for Jack Eichel or you get rid of him and you bring, you know, you gotta, he's the only guy you can realistically cash out on and get a fucking King's ransom in return right now. Like, if you want to legitimately blow this shit up, that'd be a very good start to do it. And let, you know, Voracek go to Seattle. I'm sure somebody would take Claude Giroux just because of, you know, who he is. Like, that'd be the way to do it. Couturier needs to go. 
you know, it, it, it's not even necessarily his fault at this point as much as it is the team around him that has put him in a hole where he's, you know, he's more valuable to the organization as a trade ship than he is locking him up for eight years to $8 million when you can't move him. Move him now while he's got a cheap contract. Every team in the league will be interested in Sean Couturier right now. If you wait a couple of years when he turns 32 and he's in, you know, locked in that big long-term contract, nobody's going to fucking want him. You know, get rid of him now, get a couple of high picks, and try this shit again in a few years, and call me when they're fucking good. Because I have had enough of this Philadelphia Flyers team as is. And people don't want to hear it, but he's the only guy that they have right now. And you you could trade a Travis Konechny and get a decent return for him. You could trade Scott Lawton and probably get a first-round pick and a decent prospect for him at the deadline if you so choose to go down that road. I still think... If you want to trade young defensemen like Sanheim and Myers, they'll get you something of decent value. But Couturier is the only one that will get you a franchise-altering return. And people don't want to hear it, but that's true. I don't care that James Van Riemsdyk has had a very solid 27 games in a season where you play the same seven teams <laughs> over and over and over again. You cash He's out high on them when you can. Exactly. Now that like he's got this... some trade value for the first time since his contract started. You fucking cash out while he's playing high. I was talking about this with Gossesbear in one of the past shows. I don't remember if you were or with Shane, but you know, Gossesbear, he's a guy for years. We can't trade Gossesbear. His trade value is at an all-time low. And for the first time in four years, he finally starts playing like a semi-competent defenseman. And people go, well, we can't trade him now. He's playing well. Like, fuck off. You're waiting for these players to get good so you can deal them for something. So that four and a half million dollar contract he's tied to for two more fucking years looks kind of edible. You know, find a different team that'll take the risk. What the fuck are you keeping this guy here for? How long has Shane Gossiper been here? When did he debut? 2013, 2014? He's been here for fucking ever. He's one of these guys we're talking about. Oh my God. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it all. I just, um... They have I, I five think. games in seven days. Five games! Sat tonight, Saturday, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. What the fuck? They don't even get a break. Which is probably in their favor. They can go on here and hopefully by praying to whatever god you believe in that, you know, they'll beat the Islanders tonight. Everybody will forget about the Rangers game. <laughs> LOL! Overreaction! You know? It wasn't real. It was an overreaction. They'll be fine. They'll turn it around. Everybody will take their fucking foot off the hatred pedal for a minute. And everything will calm down for another couple weeks till they inevitably blow another game. But the reality is, like, I think we know who the Flyers are now. And they're shit. And it's time to fucking blow this team up. And before we close it out here, I yeah. do want to spin a bit of a positive note on this. How? I think that in some way, them bottoming out right now, if it continues, like, is the best case scenario. Probably. Because I think the only way that this ownership and upper management will get a kick in the ass to make significant changes is if they don't make the playoffs and they lose more money. Because I think that if this team, by, let's say, hypothetical, and I still wouldn't put it past them, for them to go on some run and sneak in, I would not be surprised at all. But that would probably be the worst-case scenario for this team. Because if they do that, and then just get their teeth kicked in in the first or second round, 
where they're just going to be like, okay, we'll tinker with the defense and we'll come back and do it again next year. The only way we're going to see significant changes here is by this team bottoming out between now and the end of the regular season. It's the best case scenario for everyone. Because as long as we keep doing this mediocre finishing in between 12 and 20 in the NHL, uh, you know, I thought we were past that with Ron Hexel. It seems like Chuck Fletcher's more the same, except his standards are a bit higher. Like uh, Hextall wanted, just didn't care if they got in or didn't. And Fletcher just wants them to get in. So his standards are a bit higher. But aside from that, it just seems like there's complacency from up and down this line or this organization, rather. And um, I think the only way things really change is if the roster really gives upper management no choice. Yep. I, I would agree with that. Hi, everybody. We'll call it a day. Gotta get going here. Uh, at Dan the Flyer Van, at Brotherly Puck, at Brotherly underscore pod, at Harp Countdown underscore, if you want to count down his fucking non-existent wins with me. You can do that. Anthony, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, you can find me at Adamarker25. All right, everybody. Until next time, goodbye and good night. Yeah! Yeah!